Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you uh, spoke to these churches in history. And thank you that they are words which speak to your church for all time. Please help us to hear these words, the warnings and the encouragements. Help us to listen to you. Please help us to be thoughtful and reflective, not only in our own lives, but in our church life as well. And perhaps even um, wider for the church as we might see it in our country um, and even the world. Please teach us, we pray. Amen. So I want to ask this question as we start. There are loads and loads of things that are jostling for priority in our life. Now, I wanted to do a fancy uh, word cloud, but I couldn't work out how to do it. So there's just bullet points. Now, just have a little run through those, glance through. Um, surely m- lots of them resonate, don't they, with us? Important things um, in our lives, perhaps even the most important. What, what things would, would jostle for place in priority there is happiness, contentment, um, the well-being of our grandchildren, perhaps, financial security, retirement plans, um, but even other things as well, which we might put into a more kind of spiritual category. Seeing my friends and family come to Christ. Really all important things. But these letters remind us that there is one priority. That's a priority, isn't it? The prior thing. The only thing that is above all of those things, no matter how good they are. And that is making it to heaven. Remaining faithful to Jesus is our priority. That is it, above all else. You can see it in the letters as we had them read. You might have um, noticed those patterns that ring through. And the, John puts it like this, or Jesus does, doesn't he, himself. He puts it, the one who overcomes or conquers. Um, have a look down to verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Verse 17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. That is what Jesus wants in his churches. It is paramount that his churches and his people make it to the end, remaining faithful to him. And it's imagery of victory and conquering. So the, the Greek word is, is Nikeo, Nike from the, the Greek god of victory. So maybe you remember, every time you see the Nike swoosh from now on, think to yourself, Jesus wants his church to conquer and be victorious. Maybe you can remember that. Every time you see the Nike swoosh, God wants his people to conquer. And we, we're taking these letters all together because they, they say one thing and they work as a block, really. And it's two big chapters. So I thought it'd be really helpful just to summarise them in three words. Is that helpful? Good. There they are. Victory through faithfulness. That is it. If you fall asleep from now on, um, you'll have got that important bit. Victory through faithfulness. That is what these letters are about. A few years ago, um, I was at the FIEC conference and we had a little gathering of ex-students um, from, the, from the Bible College where I was. Uh, we all gathered together because there's quite a number, as you can imagine. And uh, there's a, a well-known speaker who some of you will know and a, and a writer who was speaking at the conference. And someone had kind of asked him if he'd come, 
into this little room and have a drink with, with these students and give them a word. And he did. And uh, he's uh, a, a, an older guy, uh, extremely wise, extremely godly, extremely clever, uh, Bible handling, all the rest of it. And someone asked him, they said, look, what can we pray for you? And he said, pray that I'll remain faithful and make it. I sort of paraphrase, I can't remember the exact words. And he followed it by saying, you'd be surprised how many people I know of his contemporaries in their 70s not doing that. So pray. And these letters, they contain the aim and the purpose of the whole of Revelation. So if you wondered about what all the weird stuff's about later on, it's about this. It's about motivating and encouraging us to have victory through faithfulness, to remain faithful to Jesus. So all of, all of these um, parts of Revelation, the heavenly and historical realities, are there to motivate and encourage us. And you'll notice there's seven letters here. And we thought about um, numbers and things last week in our introduction. So seven is that idea of completeness and fullness. So these letters speak to actual historical churches. But in doing so, and being gathered into seven, of course there were more than seven churches at the time, but in being gathered like this, they function as, as kind of signifying the universal church in their local expressions. And they work as a block because they follow a bit of a structure. So I think we have that on the slide. I think I put some of that in a rather unhelpful colour. <clears throat> I ran, ran out of colours. So can you see how the, 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 the first and the seventh kind of go together, and then the, the second and the sixth, and the, um, third and the fifth, and the fourth one in the middle. And they do that. So you can see Ephesus and Laodicea. So Ephesus has got one fault, really, they get picked up on. They've gone cold on Jesus. They've lost their first love. But Laodicea have got major faults. They are lukewarm in their faith. Um, they get a bit more obvious to, to spot as we move in. There's the letter to Smyrna. No faults picked up at all, which is encouraging. But mention of persecution. Exactly the same in Philadelphia. No faults, but they're kept from persecution. Pergamon and Sardis, a mixed bag. Um, Pergamon's kind of good, but then they've got some bad, which we'll look at. And then there's Sardis. They're mixed, but around the other way, really. They're basically bad, but some good. And then right in the middle um, is the letter to Thyatira, where there's major faults and there's major promises. And structures like this that you might have come across in the Bible, they kind of emphasise that, that middle bit. And that could do a number of things. It could be the main point. It could be saying, look, we haven't got bold or italic um, in our Greek Bible, so we structure it like this. It could be saying that's the main point. But often they work as a kind of hinge point as well. If you imagine a, um, a seesaw in the playground, a child's playground, and, and someone's walked down one end and there's the seesaw, and then they walk up towards the middle, and then what happens when they hit the middle? It tips and it runs the other way. So it could be a, a turning point, and often that's the case where the second half, things are repeated or they're similar, but they're slightly different because of the middle, or they're really intensified. So I think we'll see a little bit of that. You might have also noticed that all the individual letters follow the same structure. They, they introduce who's speaking, they describe Jesus, and then there's a, a, a warning or a well done, and then there is a call to conquer, which we've looked at briefly just now. So let's begin by 
looking at those parts of the letters. So who's speaking? It's Jesus himself. Now, he's giving the words to the angel of the churches. You can see in your footnote that could be messenger, could be a spiritual being of each church, perhaps. Um, It could be the person sending the message. But actually, I think that the the key importance as we read through the Bible is that the angel person, the angel character, basically is speaking for God. So here's the, the angel. You have the words of God. These churches will therefore have the words of God as the angel delivers them. And it's Jesus himself speaking. Look at verse one. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the lampstands. Now, lots of these descriptions, they pick up things that we've seen in chapter one. So you'll remember that if you were here last week, um, that that description is there. He who holds um, the seven stars in his right hand. And then to the church in Smyrna as well. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again, the Alpha and the Omega. Have a look at verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This is the Jesus that, that is speaking. He has authority to speak to the churches. He has a personal concern to speak to the churches. This is the awesome, risen Lord Jesus. That incredible imagery with the feet of burnished bronze that we read, eyes like blazing fire, verse 18. Or chapter 3, verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Verse 14 of chapter 3, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So we're not thinking about baby Jesus that we thought about a couple of weeks ago at Christmas. And we're not even thinking about the crucified lamb on the cross at the end of the gospel, we're thinking about the risen lamb who reigns. That, the awesome warrior of Isaiah, the king of kings. That is who's writing to the churches. He has that authority. That is the one who is speaking to us right now as we read these words. And he is the one who knows. And back to verse chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds, he says. Or verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and your faith. And he knows what the churches are getting up to, what's going right and what's going wrong. He knows everything. Are we able to flick to the next slide? I don't know if you remember or have seen this film, The Truman Show. Do you remember The Truman Show? And um, he's, um, there's Truman, um, Jim Carrey. And he doesn't know it until the, towards the end of the film. He's trapped in an artificial world. His whole life is a television experiment. And his whole life is on TV. So you can see the, the line there. On the air, unaware. And there he is asleep. So everything gets seen by people around the world watching him, brushing his teeth, going to bed going to school for the first time, riding his bike. Every single thing is seen. Not too dissimilar to some of the, um, the, the world we live in now, is it? But in a way, that, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows. He sees every single thing that happens in every single one of his churches. Because he's the Lord, isn't he? He neither sleeps nor slumbers. 
He sees everything. Verse 1 of chapter 2. He holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is among his churches. That's how he sees what's going on in his churches and he's among them. It's a bit like if, if someone comes in and I might have to do this. To get another chair, someone else has joined us. Because the Lord Jesus is among his churches. And the warnings are here to motivate us. So I don't want these passages to worry us. We should know from the rest of the Bible, that if you are saved, you are saved. God doesn't want your salvation to be kind of feel like it's on a knife edge or to do with your performance, because Jesus keeps everyone that are his. But God uses warnings as the means to keep his people. So God will keep his people, but sometimes he uses warnings in order to keep them. There are means to do that. And there, and there is a call to repent through here. So verse 5, chapter 2, how far you've fallen, repent. Verse 16, repent, otherwise, repent, otherwise I will soon come and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Verse 19 of chapter 3, I love those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Because if you do not, in chapter 2, I will, Jesus says, Remove the lampstand, the churches. So the church that is not repenting, that is not staying faithful, Jesus who is among the churches, what does he say he'll do? No more church. So we we must listen. That's what John is saying in these letters. Look, listen. He says, these are the words of him. But did you notice that these are the words? And at the end of the letter, um, it says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the words of Jesus is the Spirit speaking. So there's some warnings and there's some encouragements. And the warnings for these churches are the same dangers for us. So the warnings for them are the same dangers for us. So we've looked at who's speaking the Lord himself. So let's look at some of the warnings. Um, So these warning, we've seen some of the things that have gone wrong in the churches and they're they're kind of mirrored. And I think that after um, the middle letter to Thyatira, what's happening is that the dangers and the faults seem to get worse, I think. They seem to intensify. So look, you know, we know that church is never black and white, is it? It's not goodies and baddies. There's a mix, and that's true even within the local churches. So if we come back to the first letter in Ephesus, they're persevering. Verse 2, I know your perseverance, and I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So there's some good things there, but then perhaps that makes some of the critique all the more shocking. There's a good church that can still kind of get pulled up on stuff. Perhaps it's something that doesn't look really so bad 
He says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the first love, the love you had at first. Literally, you've abandoned it or you've left it. Well, maybe that doesn't seem so bad. Why is he picking up on that? You're just not as on fire as you were before. And, you know, we know that feeling, don't we? We've got life and we've got family and stuff to do. And we can't be keen student Christians forever, can we? But it doesn't seem to be how God sees it. He says, look, you've, 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 you've gone a bit cold. You don't love me like you did at first. And I think that really, that mutates, doesn't it, into the church and lady see in the seventh letter. It mutates into this lukewarmness. So it's not just losing a first love and, and not being so, so keen on it. There's a kind of, ugh, not even bothered. Chapter 3, verse, verse 15. I know your deeds, and you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. We've all done that, haven't we? We've all done the dishes with the hot water and we finish the dishes and then perhaps someone's gone for a, a glass of water and you've gone for a glass of water and you've forgotten to let the cold run for a bit and you take it and you go, Bleh! and straight back out into the sink and then you let the cold run a bit more. That's what Jesus is saying. You're just, nah. And I'll spit you out. They're a sort of drifting church in Laodicea. And that there's no good deeds there. So perhaps there is a, a bit of a movement after this middle letter from doing really well, but not so, not so um, uh, hot for serving Jesus as you were, to this kind of uh, drifting church. But not only that, it's the church which says in chapter 3, verse 17, I am rich, you say, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy me from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover up your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And I was wondering, does that sound, could that be familiar to us? Perhaps not um, at Rock maybe, but in churches we know. Or even in the country. Churches which say, I'm rich and I've acquired everything. I don't know if you've heard this, but I, I've heard many people um, wonder if the church in this country has a bit of a class problem. That, that, that the gospel can be reaching the middle class quite well, but not necessarily the working class. Um, I don't know if that's true. It, it, it could be, couldn't it? As we look at some churches and um, churches which we may know perhaps. And we might argue for the intellectual value of the gospel. We're keen on the apologetics and we know the gospel. And the gospel is proclaimed often to people who have everything else. And it can be a kind of a, an add-on. Well, I've, I'm rich and I've, got, I've acquired everything. Yeah, I'd like to maybe tick some religious boxes as well. But this church here in Laodicea seems to be a, a church full of people that think, well, we're doing very well, thank you very much. And because of their wealth, perhaps they're blinded to the true riches found in pursuing Christ. That their wealth has made them know about Jesus. That's perhaps how it, it seems, doesn't it? So there's that going on. There's a kind of bland drifting along, neither hot nor cold, or perhaps just slowly drifting away from Jesus as our first love. And we'll hold back um, just on those two churches on the inside with um, 
with no fault. And we'll come in to look at the other two. Um, so the church in Pergamon here is sucked in by false teaching. Do you notice there's um, lots of names of individuals? So we heard of um, Balaam, and then as we move through as well into the, into the next letter, um, Jezebel, and then the Nicolaitans. So it, with Balaam and Jezebel, they're kind of um, signpost names, aren't they? They're like the archetypes from, from the Old Testament. Jezebel, a wicked woman who is against God's people. And Balaam, uh, we'll come to him in a moment. So there's specific things going on. Specific teachings which the, the churches are, are, are drifting towards. And, and Balaam was this character in Numbers. And uh, Balak wanted Balaam confusing, isn't it, to, to curse Israel as a prophet. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. Um, because God just said there's going to be blessing. But the trouble with Balaam is that he preferred the money. He wanted the money, really. And, and in a way, he wanted, he looks like someone who wants to serve God without loving God. And in Numbers 31, we read that he was the one that was responsible for enticing the Israelites into sexual immorality perhaps suggesting to Balak, well, if you can't get them by God cursing them, well, put some Moabite women in front of them. And I wonder if there is some similarity, really, with assimilation, we sometimes call it, don't we, with with a church which wants to join in with the culture, particularly on this issue of sexual liberation. This doesn't sound ancient, does it, anymore? A church which is compromised in the area of sexual morality. And that only intensifies, as we just mentioned in, in Thyatira, in this slightly longer letter, and uh, verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Well, I mean, we've all been around the block long enough to know that sexual immorality can happen in the church. We shouldn't be blind to that. And it can happen through um, a kind of a assimilation or drifting towards a teaching, saying, well, actually, I can do both. It's often not as straightforward as thinking, oh, if I do that, I can never be a Christian or... Uh, how can I balance it? And we, and, we, uh, and we can do it. And it can happen in a kind of a, uh, not just individually. Remember that, that, that these letters are to churches, not, not just individuals. It's on the bigger scale. What does church or churches have to say about these sorts of issues? And the church, I think, can be very tempted to, to drift in that area. Do you not think that's the case even now in the area of sexual morality or um, gender, all of these hot topics, to the extent where it feels like the church as a whole must take certain stances to survive even, to the extent where the compromise actually feels like the way forward to, to remain and to be victorious. So in February this year, next month, in a couple of weeks, um, the Church of England Synod, I I think uh, uh, this is right, will be voting on a stance on gay marriage, for example. 
for same-sex marriage. So I wonder how that's going to go. What would, what would the letter read if there was an eighth letter to the church in England? I write to you, I see your good things, but on certain issues, you compromise. I remember hearing about a church in London and a friend who was there was distressed and, and, and ended up leaving to see that the leadership would take no stance or even um, a gentle correction toward cohabitation. It's just part of the culture. And, but we sort of laugh at that now, probably. That's, 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 quite, that's quite small fry, isn't it, compared to the other things in, the, in this area which we could think about. Um, but churches can drift. So let's, let's hear these warnings. These are letters for the churches uh, for all time. But it's not all down. There are blessings for the, for the victors. And I, I, want, I want us to see, um, that when I was reading this this week, it struck me that I could have missed this. But I think it's important to stop and think. This idea of Jesus knowing and seeing, you know, the Truman Show, and he's the awesome Lord, and he, he's walking among the, the churches, and he's here with us. I think I nearly missed the fact that that can be a really encouraging thing. could sound a bit scary on what we're doing, but, but Jesus says, look, I know. He knows his faithful churches. Chapter 2, I know your deeds, you work hard, uh, your hard work, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate wicked people. To the church in Smyrna, verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you're rich. I think that should be a real encouragement because I look around at rock and I see loads of hard work for, for the Lord. Perseverance. And often we can think that that goes unnoticed and often it does go unnoticed. You're staying up late to prepare a, a study or you're out visiting somewhere else, or even if it's just your prayers, which no one will ever know, hear or see. But the Lord knows. So in all of your um, perseverance for the Lord, which maybe you don't talk about, maybe you don't think anyone appreciates or knows, Jesus does. He knows your deeds. And that could be a really encouraging thing as well. It's never, never unseen and never, ever wasted to live your life in any way, big or small, for Jesus. He knows about those believers in North Africa we were praying for this morning, imprisoned for their faith. How might these letters encourage them? Look, chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I'll tell you, the devil will put put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. See, for those two guys, right now, we don't know what the situation is with them. But the one who holds the seven stars and rules all of creation knows. Interesting to note, isn't it, there, when he says, look, the, the devil will put you something in, into prison. There's a little hint there. We're beginning to see some of the spiritual truths behind the ways of the world. 
which we'll see even more of in Revelation. So the synagogue of Satan was mentioned. That sounds quite scary, doesn't it? I think that what John uh, means is those that call themselves Jews, well, Jews should have accepted the Messiah. And the ones that, that have rejected him, well, Jesus in John chapter 8 says that they are uh, sons of your father, the devil, who was alive from the beginning. That's what he tells the Pharisees. I wonder if that's what he um, is getting at here. Not just throwing out insults, but highlighting who is behind the rejecting of Jesus and the persecuting of those who accept him. But as we've seen, there's blessing and there's encouragement. Chapter 2, uh, verse 8. Uh, I know your poverty. Um, uh, chapter 3. Uh, sorry, verse 8. I know your deeds. I've seen, uh, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, um, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So who among us here has not felt that we're believers of little strength? I've felt that. I'm I'm sure you have from time to time, but these believers of little strength, they'll be vindicated. The ones persecuting them, there will be a time when they will have to admit, oh yeah, Jesus was on your side and loving you. They will acknowledge Jesus has loved you. And these, notice that these um, churches without fault, um, the Smyrna and uh, in, in Philadelphia, did you notice that, that they're without fault, the ones that have been uh, blessed, but they're not without suffering? Because compromise is not the way to victory, as we might think sometimes, well, if we just do this. It can be tempting, can't it? How far could I compromise without rejecting Jesus? How... How could I sort of blend into the world a bit enough to sort of hold on to my faith as well? Well, that doesn't seem to be the picture here because the the churches that get through without any critique are the ones which have the most talked about persecution. So so actually, it's faithfulness which will give us victory through persecution. If we only repent of the sins that the world repents of, is that really holiness? If we don't kick up a fuss in this area and think that we can stay safe in that area, it's compromise and it's not the path to remaining faithful. And on the flip side, falling away is not always the result of persecution. That's an encouragement here, isn't it? Even, even unto death in chapter 2, and you'll have the victor's crown. Notice how kept and cherished and loved these churches are by Jesus and just as we finish let's look at the blessings themselves how I think they increase did you notice that after that middle letter to the church in Thyatira the blessings change before that they've got a a feeling of sort of life and after that I think they've got a feeling of the presence of God like even better so have a look down at um, chapter 2 verse 7 to the one who's victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life okay we're going to get life that's good. Verse 11, whoever hears, let him hear to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Life, that's good, isn't it? 
Verse 17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, the bread from heaven, the bread, bread you need to stay alive, to live. But then, as we've seen, that that, that middle letter is quite intense. And, and then after that, we see that the, the blessings have got a different shape to them. So chapter 3, verse 5. Um, I will not blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but I'll acknowledge the name before my father and his angels. So there's a sense of the presence of God. Jesus, in the, in the presence of God, will acknowledge you and say, these are the guys that trusted in me and the cross and my forgiveness in the presence of my father. Verse 12 of chapter 3, um, to the one who's victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what's the temple about? The temple's about the presence of God. Imagine being sort of an actual pillar there, right in the presence of God. And if that wasn't enough, verse 21 of chapter 3 is even, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and I sat down with my father on my throne. So if that's not enough about having eternal life and not dying, you get to be in the presence of God and on the throne and reigning forever with him. So they, they kind of, they, they increase after this, this middle letter, which has a lot of um, intense language in it, doesn't it? The, the false teachings called the Satan's so-called deep secrets. But it's the blessings that are intense as well. And it sort of begins there in that kind of pivot, if you like. So verse 26, chapter 2, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that will rule, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. So what he's saying is that we get to, to rule with him. That language from Psalm 2, the one who rules with an iron scepter. There's a brilliant, I haven't got time to look at it now, but go and have a look at Daniel chapter 7. There's a wonderful detail that I love there. It's, it's where the, the beasts and the monsters are all the empires of the world, uh, and they're taking over. But then there's one like a son of man who gets given authority. And that, of course, is Jesus, human being, um, God the Son in, in human nature, um, made to, to be given all authority. And Daniel can't understand it. And he asks the angel, what's the interpretation of all this? The interpretation doesn't mention the Son of Man at all. It simply says that the church and God's people will be given the authority. So, so close are Jesus and his people that we share his blessings. That's why John later on will call the church the bride. You know, the bride is the church coming down. And we're given the morning star. We read later on, Chapter 22 of Revelation, that's Jesus himself. So those are, those are the blessings. That is what awaits the victory. Isn't that amazing? And we should be casting our eyes onto that. I remember when I was a, a lot younger, someone said to me, and I was quite shocked by it, they said, if you can imagine heaven without Jesus in it, you probably won't be there. Because the true believer loves their Lord and wants to be with him. That's what's on offer. And everything else here that we thought about at the beginning, that there's nothing more desirable than, 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 than being with Jesus forever. All of those things we thought about, they, they don't cast a shadow onto that. So victory is through remaining faithful to Jesus. And I don't know, if that, if that sounds hard, well, read the rest of Revelation, because that will motivate and encourage us. But for now, let's just finish on this verse. Come back to verse um, 25 of chapter 2. 
say. So to those who have not learned the second so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until you come. That's making it really simple, isn't it? Hold on to what you have until you come. I want to finish with this. Um, I caught a little bit of a, uh, something on, on, on the radio about John Donne, 17th century poet and later minister, and they, they read a bit on the radio of his final sermon. So I was thinking about this, holding on to what you have until you come. And, and he writes this, that, um, that he wants to, he, this is his last sermon, leaving you in blessed dependency to hang upon him that hangs upon the cross. There bathe in the tears, there suck at his wounds, lie down in peace in his grave till he vouchsafe for you a resurrection and an ascension into that kingdom which he hath purchased for you with the inestimable price of his incorruptible blood. Amen. Hold on to what you have until I come. Amen.